This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this morning, as we, as we look at this prologue, as we look at Luke's introduction to his friend Theophilus, we, I'd like us to consider three dynamics at play in Luke's introduction that consider what Jesus' story means for us. His friend, this one goal that, that Luke seems to be moving towards to show his friend is that the story of Jesus is a story for us. It's one for us to be encouraged by, to see how it's reasonable to believe to see how the story of Jesus reassures the insecure. And also to see how this faith in Jesus renews our faith for the journey. So I want to draw our attention back to verses 1 and verse 2. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So one thing we have to consider, friends, is that we've been in the Old Testament narratives for a while because we've been in 1 Samuel. And the, the way that we hear and the way that the, the truth of the word is portrayed is more through story form. But now we find ourselves this morning in an ancient prologue introducing a letter of evidence and a letter of things. So it feels a little bit more technical. Like as I read this, I got I to gotta shake the, the stories out of me, of, the, of 1 Samuel, of witches of Endor and things being killed and Israel in attack and all of these different things. And now we've got to find ourselves in this moment where we have this physician delicately arranging this set of stories and evidence to his friend. But recently, I was listening to um, I was listening to this little section of uh, it, it, sp- it got my curiosity. Joe Rogan, he's this this podcaster guy, he's a really famous dude. I got this. I saw this hashtag where it says Joe Rogan hashtag destroys Christianity. Hashtag epic rant. Have you guys seen these? No. Well, now I feel embarrassed. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's this little clip of him talking about Christianity, talking about the Christian faith. And this is what he says. It was good, so I wrote it down. He says, the idea of God, even if there's some all-knowing entity that is controlling everything and is filled with love and has a grand plan for the universe, they have yet to show themselves. This is all just a concept, an idea with no basis in fact. Hashtag, destroy Christianity. That's what we got. That's what we got. Now, it's sad, as Christians, it's sad to hear this, but there's also 
a strong encouragement that I want to put, put, put before you guys this morning. Because we can be encouraged by arguments or, or blatant statements like this. Because all we need to do is chip a little bit at a book like Luke, a gospel story like Luke to help us. And there are two dimensions that Luke wrote that we can kind of engage with. The first is a historical dimension. A historical dimension, this objective truth about Jesus. That when we hear things like this, when we hear things in this kind of way that Christianity is only based off of feelings and it's not based off of facts, we can come to with objective evidence. We can come to with objective truth. But it's not just that. The other dimension is a personal dimension, which is how we subjectively experience Jesus. So these are the two, these are the two dimensions that we find ourselves in this morning and that we can engage with in the public square. Let's first talk about the historical dimension. Luke was a man of science. He was a man of faith. Medicine and miracles. He's meticulous in his detail. He writes accurately and he's this missionary traveling with Paul. As we find in Acts, which is volume one is, is the gospel of Luke. Volume two is Acts. He wrote them together as one unit but he's also this historian this historian who knew how to write down history over time and luke wanted his readers he wanted us to understand that this story of jesus came from the best most authentic and oral sources that it's grounded in historiography reliable sources and is divinely authoritative it's not just a concept. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. But to say it's just a concept or an idea doesn't match the level of depth and research that Luke did. You have to come to it on his level, on his terms. Right? It's not just about conversations he had with Jesus-loving enthusiasts. These were eyewitnesses. These were people who are still living. It's objective. There's a truth to it. And you have to kind of reach it in this area. And it kind of reminds me right now of how I'm, as I'm in school, I'm starting to notice as the research gets more and more intense and it gets more specific that there's certain ways that you have to, you have to format like doctoral papers. And if you don't, they're like, your ideas are fine, but the structure is, is not there, so it's invalid, Right? I'm not, I'm not bitter, but today, or this week, I lost, I went down a whole letter grade because a footnote wasn't a tabbed in. A footnote was not one tab over. I'm not bitter, and I'm not, I'm not resentful. I'm just thinking about it still. It matters, though. It matters. And if you want to approach it on that level, there has to be a sense of structure that needs to be added. Now, the beautiful thing about Luke is that if we just open it up and we just read it and don't fully understand what this prologue is, then we miss all of the beauty of that and all of the objective, this beautiful truth that it is, which this, these first four verses are considered in history as some of the most authentic 
passages of ancient literature that we have to date. The way that he wrote this and the purpose of writing it is, is matched and is one of the best representations of an introduction of declaring historical facts. It's, it's a big deal that this passage is written in the structure that it is. For those of you who have read Josephus, which I know you have, or Eusebius, all of these, these uh, ancient writings, they have the same framework. They have the same set of arguments of what's going to happen and when. And it's beautiful because not only is it a historical document, it's also personal. It's for us. But let me give you another example of Luke. It's just what, a flavor that you're going to find. From what we have in the other Gospels, if we're looking at the other Gospels, in Luke, he's far more detailed than, than some of the others on purpose. Think about chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. This is kind of describes the detail that, that he gives, where he says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Corianus was governing Syria. Crystal clear, full of details, full of timelines, and it's awesome. It's awesome because when someone comes to challenge or someone approaches you in the sense of that's just based off of feelings that has no historical merit to it, friends, be encouraged, be encouraged to say faithfully, you are wrong. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You can open up our Bibles and we can do that. Sometimes we always think of Scripture as like, I need a word, I need a word from God, I need a word, an encouragement, I need something. But sometimes when we need to defend the truth of the gospel, we, the Bible holds up. Friends, the Bible holds up in those circumstances too. But let's go now to this personal perspective because if it's just objective, if we're just going to read it like a history book, it's going to be too cold. It's going to be too cold. We need a personal element to this as well. This personal element reminds me of this Swiss theologian who described God's word like this where he said, it's like a mother smiling at her newborn child for many days and weeks until she finally receives a child's smile in response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. The faith that we have is a personal, real, beautiful faith because God has awakened us up to it. The power of the Holy Spirit awakening this knowledge within us helps us see and helps us understand and experience the presence of Jesus. Helps us see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus and understand that it is far more vast than we could understand, but yet far closer than we fully realize as well. It's a mystery of the gospel. 
that we don't fully know why and how we we experience these different stories, but we find ourselves miraculously in Jesus' story. And over time, as we grow in our discipleship, as we grow in our faith, this love that we have awakens to a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of who he is. Our faith, that's an active faith. A faith that is active is one that doesn't just look at the facts and details of things, but experiences them in a true way. We are awakened to love and to knowledge. It reminds me of that, of a, a quote that uh, Charles Spurgeon shared where he says that the Bible, the gospel, has depths in it that only the Leviathan can swim in. But there are also creeks and streams that a lamb can wade in. There's beauty to both. There's beauty to the gospel and the elements that it provides that it can go deeper and hold up to the most meticulous scrutiny. But it can also be delivered and accepted through faith of a child. A child is able to understand and be awakened in the same knowledge. The truth of the gospel is not only just objective fact, but it is subjective experience. It's both. Let me draw your attention to verses 3 through 4, where, where we go into this, this moment of, speaking, of Luke speaking directly to Theophilus, where he says, It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty um, of which you've been instructed. And here we find the story of Jesus being reassuring. So we don't know much about Theophilus. We don't know much about him. But based on Luke's address of him and in the beginning of Acts, we know that Luke sought to bring some kind of reassurance to his faith. In some way, he's shaken by an insecurity of some kind, whether it's his faith in, in the validity of Jesus, whether it's a discouragement of a season of life that he's in, or maybe it's him not serving in a way that he once was before. Whatever the case may be, Luke finds it important to address him specifically and address these insecurities with the stories of Jesus as his Savior. But the beautiful thing about Luke's address here is that this isn't it, that this moment, it shows that Jesus is not a far off God, but a very near God, comforting the insecure. And as we see in this moment, following, we meet characters and people as we're going through the next coming months of all types of insecurities. Now, I don't know about you, but I have my sense of, my sets of insecurities. All of us do. All of us have something that leaves us unsure. And we find time and time again how Jesus 
meets people where they're at and lifts them up out of that, out of that insecurity to show them who he is. To the socially insecure, we have a story. Luke chapter 4, we have a tax collector. This tax collector is seen as a traitor in the story. He's seen as a traitor to Israel. And Jesus comes up to him. And to the socially insecure person, Jesus says, I accept you. There's great power in this because Jesus looks at tax collectors in the eyes. In a society where people would never look at someone in the face out of the shame that they want to bring to them for being someone who's a traitor to their people, Jesus looks at the socially insecure and says, I accept you. But then we also have stories of physically insecure people. The leper in Luke chapter 5. The leper is someone who's off, who's been ostracized from, from society because of the disease that they have. And all of a sudden, we have a story of this Jesus coming in this very real moment of sickness and disease and where a person is cast out of society for him to say to the physically insecure, I heal you. I heal you. You have value to me. Jesus brings reassurance again in Luke chapter 7 to the woman who was a sinner. That is what she is known as. Luke chapter 7, he comes to the morally insecure. The morally insecure in person and says to her, I forgive you. I forgive you. But he continues on, friends, in Luke chapter 8. Do you see what, Je what Luke is doing here in portraying Jesus? Very earthy, very real moments. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus comes to a demon-possessed man what I call spiritually insecure. He comes to a demon possessed. He comes to the tombs. And what does Jesus say? He says, I free you. I free you. The socially insecure, physically insecure, morally insecure, spiritually insecure. Jesus has a word of truth for everyone. But let's say that we may not find ourselves in one of those things. So to all, of the, to all of us who have some insecurity of some kind, whether it be a mix of a social insecurity, a physical insecurity, a moral insecurity, Jesus says, I love you. I love you. And I've come here to seek and to save, to bring you into the fold so that your story of, of being lost, your story that you may have in the past is now made new in me. That's the power of Jesus when he comes to, he brings a reassuring faith. When I first got saved, I had loads of insecurity. 
I remember one time I held up my, I was in this, uh, this like youth group thing, and we're doing a small group, and one of the leaders asks um, if, if uh, what does he say? He asks, show of hands, I don't know why he said this. He says, show of hands, whose parents are still married? And I was the only one whose parents weren't married. <laughs> and I was super insecure by that. And I even remember as he's like, oops, like, oh, called out the one kid. <laughs> I'm like, now that I think about it, like, what, was, what on earth was that for? But there are like little moments in security. And friends, we've got to be careful about that. That we aren't coming, we aren't finding a place, this church, and we aren't trying to call out different things, but that we are approaching our friends, our brothers and sisters in the faith and saying, all of us have something. All of us have something we need Jesus' grace for. But the best news of that is that we can come to a church. We can come to, to a gathered brothers and sisters in the faith and say, even in my past insecurities, even in my current insecurities, Jesus is always bringing me reassurance. I never have to get it right with Jesus for him to show me how much he loves me. I never have to be at this point here for Jesus to show me that he loves me. He shows me that he loves me and lifts me up into it. Not on my own merits, by my own works, but by his grace, I am able to walk in a newness of life. I'm able to walk in a new sense of integrity, in a new peace, because Jesus has reassured me. I'm not taking, I'm not walking up a ladder trying to get to a certain point. Jesus has lifted me up into it. And I am with him, and now I have the strength, and I get to share that with brothers and sisters in the faith. Jesus reassures the story of Jesus as he shows us is not just about him. It's about us. God wants us to be assured that we fit into his community in all of these moments when we feel like we don't. Sinners and sufferers like us, like me and like you, have a place in the fold of God. Why? Because of Jesus. Because he truly knows us and reaches out with all of his power, not to condemn, but to lift up in humility and bring us into his presence. Jesus knows all about it. And in every sense of encouragement, and in every moment of insecurity, the story of Jesus renews our faith for the journey. Last week, uh, Pastor Andrew and Stephen, our, our church planner in residence, and I, we went to Louisville, Kentucky, where we went for this kind of uh, conference, this church conference. And the, the speaker, he was this pastor and seminary professor, and he's talking about this moment that he had in Bible college. This Bible teacher was speaking to him. He said that he was constantly frustrated by this teacher. That every time that he would go to class, he was 
irritated by the, the things that this guy would say. And he was irritated by him. And um, he would constantly, this teacher would constantly call the miracles in the scripture false. That he would say the resurrection was questionable. That this view of scripture was not really God's word. It's just a piece of literature to be, ex to be examined and, and criticized. And Scotty Smith, the student there, he was frustrated and challenged this all semester long. And he was like, the, he was like the frustrated student who kept on questioning everything the teacher said, raising his hand up in the back. But at the end of the semester, he felt convicted about his, about his uh, demeanor towards him. And so he wrote him an apology and he said, I'm sorry for the way that I've been treating you and the way that I, I handled your class. I shouldn't have done that. And this is what, was, this is what captivated me. As he shared the response that this Bible teacher sent back to him where he says, Oh, Scotty, it's okay. When you've been studying the Bible as long as I have, you'll grow bored with it too. And he's right. Friends, it's easy to grow bored with the story of Jesus. Because I can tell you at first hand that it isn't just academia. It isn't just academia. If we aren't careful, the scriptures can lose their excitement, can lose their sheen, can lose its reality. If you approach it as a how-to book, as an instruction manual, it will grow dull because that's not what it is. Instruction manuals, friends, are not designed to change your heart. They aren't designed to meet you in your darkest, deepest, most insecure place. That is not what they're for. We can't treat it like this. The beauty of the, of this, of the Bible, of God's Word, shows us the truest of realities and at the same time invites us in to see and to witness the very breath of God put on page. We can't grow bored with it, friends. We can't go bored with it. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The question I have is, how can we possibly treat this like an instruction manual when we are called to take up our crosses and follow Jesus? You can't. You can't do it in that kind of way. But here's the thing, friends. If we are the only ones working on our own merits to do it, then it's going to lose its kind of zeal because we'll grow tired of the, of, the, of the efforts, of the merits that we've tried to put into it. We need Jesus to renew us daily. We need Jesus to renew our faith so that we can read this and be captivated by it. So these are two takeaways that I want to I wanna focus in on as we think about how Jesus, the story of Jesus, renews our faith. 
It's first, it's let's be shaped by this story. Jesus is reigning on his throne right now as we worship him. The Holy Spirit is moving, is teaching, is explaining this to us. But insecurity is powerful. Insecurity is powerful because it causes us to look around at other things for comfort. It causes us to look around. Theophilus isn't someone who is very far away. Theophilus hits home because he's just like us. He's just like this, just like us, someone who is a brother in the faith and yet met in a season of insecurity. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to shape us so that we can look at the scriptures and see, yes, it is objectively true, but in no such way do I ever want it to be boring. So, so pray, so ask God in these moments of my, of my daily my daily walk, what area do you need to reinvigorate? Maybe it's you're getting up too early to where you're like a zombie, and when you're reading your Bibles, you're just kind of skimming the words. You guys ever felt that? You're like, I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to pray to Jesus, I'm going to read my Bible. You don't even remember what you, what you read, Right? You don't remember what you read. Or maybe you're saying, I'm going to read my Bible right before I go into my, right before I fall asleep because I want the Word to be in me as I'm falling asleep. You lay down, your pillow was comfortable, you kind of went to bed too late, and you fall asleep and you wake up in the middle of the night with your Bible on your face. Right? All of us have these moments where we can, our, our ideas or our intentions may be genuine, but friends, we've got to challenge ourselves. We've got to approach Scripture in a way that we're engaging it like we would if it was a, a serious life or death matter. We want to understand God's Word because when we do, then we get to start to experience it in a fresh, fresh reality, in a fresh way. It begins to shape us when we take it seriously. As Luke is writing to Theophilus, he's not saying, read this in a comfortable position when you're at home with the TV on, maybe some light music, you're drinking tea. He's giving this to him to say, no, read it. Read it. Understand what I'm saying. This is true, and it's good. What it also calls us to is to be servants of this story. I love 1 Timothy 4, chapter 10, or chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, For this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. For this reason we labor and strive. Remember, when we read that, when we read Scripture, when we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke, it calls us to action. It invites us not just to be readers, but to be doers. 
not just to be hearers, but movement makers. To walk in faith and do. To know that we have this, this beautiful work with us of this history of brothers and sisters moving before us and being shaped by Jesus. We are shaped by the story and we are servants of the story. That's taking it, that's taking it seriously. That's moving in the direction that we see. So when there are moments when you see someone being cast out of society, maybe it's being canceled, maybe it's whatever it is, what is your action as a Christian that is countercultural, that demonstrates the power of Jesus moving in your life and shows the world that you are not just a part of your own story, you're part of Jesus' story? Maybe it's that situation that you have that you could be rightfully angry over. And yet you choose forgiveness. And you explain, I don't have to be mad and I don't have to get even. I can choose to forgive. Maybe it's showing love to someone. Maybe at your workplace. Or maybe in your family. Who it's so difficult to get along with. That it's be far easier to give up and move on than to step in closer. In these moments, friends, we are invited into Jesus' story. These are movements that invite us into a story beyond ourselves. I remember there was, when, when I was, um, I remember this moment when I was having this argument with a friend. And I remember f actively, consciously, saying out loud, I forgive you. And he kept on being like, what are you talking about? Come at me. You know, like, I want to argue. I want to push back. I'm going to push back. And I remember this, this new sense of force within me that said, that was outside of my own previous kind of inclinations, but it was a new one of forgiveness that said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. And the power of that, friends, I don't know if you've experienced that before, but if you've chosen to forgive someone instead of to continue an argument, instead of continuing to find that last word, there is great power in it. And in those moments, we are brought into and reminded of the reality that we have in Jesus. Luke wrote his gospel to establish the story of Jesus is for us. It is for us. Sinners and sufferers like you and me, walking in a world filled with confusing, difficult, trying moments. We're walking into the public square. We will hear, your faith is not built on a basis of fact. It's just an idea, a concept. But that's, friends, when we can engage with the scriptures, one that we know to be 
objectively true to have merit and hold up through history and subjectively personal and experienced and lived out in the same way. We get to hold them both up and say yes. Why? Because of Jesus. Our story is in his. He's lifted us up into it. And all the earthy and all of the real life moments and all of the humanity and the different things that we experience, we are brought up into something new and beautiful and true. Let's pray in that direction. Heavenly Father, we ask that in these, in the moments of life where we're tempted to merely look at words on a page, would you revitalize our faith so that we would see the beautiful, wonderful, real work of Jesus in our lives. Would you help us see, God, that the story of Jesus is a story for us so that we wouldn't merely be growing bored with something, but that we would never look at the scriptures as dull. We would never look at the scriptures as something to be forgotten, but that we would look at them and experience them in a new way. Despite all of our insecurities, despite the moments that we falter and are fickle in our faith, would we be reminded that Jesus has come to reassure us of who he is and lift us up into the beauty of his gospel. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.